This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast with the New Books Network. I'm Alexis McLeod, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Asian and Asian American Studies at the University of Connecticut. Today, I'm speaking with Ethan Mills, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, about his excellent new book on skepticism in the classical Indian philosophical tradition, titled Three Pillars of Skepticism in Classical India, Nagarjuna, Jairasi, and Sri Harsha. Professor Mills specializes in Indian philosophy, Greek and Roman philosophy, and world philosophy. Okay, um, well, thank you, uh, Ethan Mills, for uh, joining us today to talk about your uh, really cool book on, on skepticism. Um, I wanted to begin with just kind of asking you how, uh, how you got into philosophy in general, um, how you came to history of philosophy and Indian philosophy, and the topic of this, uh, this book in particular. Great. Well, uh, thank you um, for the question and for inviting me. Um, <clears throat> So I think I began, and my interest in philosophy began when I was uh, in high school, but like most American high school students, I didn't have a chance to learn much formally about philosophy. So uh, I read a little bit on my own. I actually read about Buddhism also, so that interest was there kind of early on. Uh, and then I got to college, and uh, of course, you know, most of the department was Western focused, and I, I learned a great deal. I, I really enjoyed uh, my classes on ancient Greek and early modern European philosophy in particular. And so I think I got into history of philosophy that way because um, that was the majority of my undergrad philosophical education was focused on the history of philosophy. And that's kind of what I was drawn towards. So, you know, for example, reading Hume for me, for example, isn't just well, here's what this Scottish guy said in the 18th century, but it's more, you know, I was thinking along with him and really getting into it and trying to, and it was affecting me in a deep way. And so I also then branched out to uh, Indian philosophy through my interest in Buddhism. And I discovered you learn about the history of Buddhism and you see, well, actually, philosophically, there was a lot going on in ancient India and the Buddhists were constantly uh, in dialogue with each other and with some of the non-Buddhist schools. And so I got into that. I did a study abroad program in India when I was an undergrad through Antioch College, which I think is now run by Carleton. Um, but uh, that got me into it. And then I took some classes. And then I got to graduate school and decided to focus on Indian philosophy. Um, and so, you know, I think that fit well with my interests in history of philosophy and so I guess uh, and as I got into that and realized that 
there's this all this great philosophy in the Indian tradition that it kind of makes me sad that uh, so many Western philosophers, so many American, British, you know, European philosophers don't know anything about it or very little. And it just seems like a shame. So it's kind of uh, one thing I'm trying to do is to make this uh, accessible and interesting to a broader philosophical audience. Yeah, that's a. It, I noticed you mentioned Hume. Was that kind of the background of the skepticism bit? Or the, yeah, the right. So skepticism <laughs> in particular. Um, yeah. So I didn't get to that yet, did I? Uh, so I think, as I mentioned in the preface of the book, uh, I was, you know, when I was a kid, maybe ten or twelve, I sort of had this thought: Well, what if nobody really knows what they're talking about? <laughs> you know, what if, you know, what if we don't really know that much? And that kind of carried over. Um, and then I learned, you know, about Hume is still one of my favorite philosophers to read. Um, but then I got into the Indian tradition and discovered there were some pretty skeptical types in there too. And so I got into it that way. And then I think uh, as I narrate this in the book, uh, in early on in my PhD program in New Mexico, I sort of had this idea, well, everyone else around here seems to have like a very a firm idea of what they believe and which philosophical views are correct at the expense of other ones. And I felt like there was something wrong with me. <laughs> and then I started reading Sextus Empiricus and uh, kind of skeptical understandings of Nagarjuna. And then I got into Jayarashi. Sri Harsha came a little bit later. Uh, and from there, I kind of found a um, little bit of maybe intellectual solace is the right way to put it, kind of some fellow travelers in the skeptical way where that the idea of being, I guess you might say philosophically indecisive is a virtue, something that's actually important to the way of life that all of those people are talking about. Right. Well, one of the interesting things to me is that part, one of the reasons that you see that um, Asian philosophy and Indian philosophy and Chinese philosophy are sometimes dismissed is this idea that there isn't kind of a questioning. It's, it's all it's all based in beliefs, religious beliefs, something like this. And one of the cool things that, that you're doing here is showing that there's actually there's a skeptical tradition there, much like what we see in much of Western philosophy. What, why do you think this 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 happens? Right. This kind of dismissal of 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 Asian philosophies on the basis of, of that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, great. Uh, great question. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely one thing I'm explicitly trying to do, I think, by writing a whole book about skepticism in Indian philosophy is to say, hey, look, this isn't kind of, uh, you know, religious dogmatism or mysticism. Although I do, of course, talk about mysticism, especially with regard to Sri Harsha, but he's a skeptical mystic. So that is also very interesting, I think. But um there's this tendency to dismiss it. And I think, um, you know, I, one of my inspirations is the, the scholar BK Matalo, and he writes in several places about what he's trying to do is to counter this Orientalist view of Indian philosophy in particular, but Asian philosophy more generally that, well, that's just sort of like woolly headed mysticism or intuitive or whatever. And so he accomplishes this by, comparing some of the classical Indian philosophers with contemporary analytic philosophers, um, which I think is one way to do it. I mean, I think there's some limitations to that approach. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is say, well, we could actually study some of these figures the same way we study Plato or Aristotle or Hume and get into their context. And that doesn't rule out making comparisons with other traditions, but, you know, we can study them and, and learn from them in their own terms as well. So this is in no way to 
uh, knock Matilo. I think he did wonderful things, but I think there's, you know, maybe a different approach that, that I'm trying to take. So I call this the expanding the history of philosophy. Hmm, that's great. I like that. So could you, you say something about the, uh, just a kind of a overview or introduction to the three different figures that you talk about in the kind of different parts of the classical Indian tradition? Sure, sure. So the the subtitle of the book, Nagarjuna, Jayarashi, and Sri Harsha, tells you the three people I'm focusing on. And so Nagarjuna was lived probably around 150 to 200 CE, somewhere in there. And he was uh, the founder of what is now known as the Madhyamaka school or the middle way school of Buddhist philosophy, which has been extremely influential in Tibet. Um, and also in China and other parts of East Asia. Um, and so Nagarjuna in particular is, um, I would say, definitely one of the people that gets interpreted the most variably. What I mean by that is there's lots of different ways of reading Nagarjuna. He's been read as a sort of deconstructionist or a metaphysician or an anti-metaphysician, or, you know, sort of an irrationalist, or, you know, there's all sorts of different ways, of, or as a mystic is a very common way of reading him too. Um, and so I was inspired, you know, especially uh, Jay Garfield and um, and some of that, and Matilal himself, actually, who I already mentioned, uh, they had these skeptical readings of Nagarjuna, but I think, you know, I felt like there was more to do in terms of clarifying exactly what we mean by that. And so that's where I got into that. So the second figure then is Jayarashi, who lived around the 8th century or 9th century. Um, and he is, I argue in the book anyway, a member of the Charbaka school. So the Charbakas are um, the materialists, the irreligious, anti-religious materialists in ancient India. Um, and actually, there's quite a bit of scholarship now that I'm getting into more with my next project uh, about, well, what do we mean by Charbuck and how do we define that? So some people, there's some scholars who want to define that as, you know, a very specific school that arose in about the 7th, 8th, 6th, 7th century, somewhere in there. But I take a sort of broader view of Charbuck that would include the very ancient schools as well as a skeptic like Jayarashi. So Jayarashi is kind of strange because the typical definition of Charvaka is that these are the people who believe there's one means of knowledge, perception, but he denies that. He denies all the means of knowledge and goes through all of them and every possible school he can think of and, and denies them. And so what I try to do is explain how does he fit that skeptical project with being part of this school, this tradition of irreligiousness. And so I, um, I could say more about that later, but I should move on to Sri Harsha then, who is usually thought to be a member of the Advaita Vedanta school. Um, and I do think he is, but I think, again, we need to be a little more expansive about what we mean by Advaita Vedanta. So if we mean just Shankara, well, he doesn't exactly fit that. He denies some things that Shankara and his followers uh, pick up on, like this theory of indeterminacy. He doesn't really develop a theory of that for example, um, and he uses a lot of the same skeptical arguments. And what's really intriguing about Sri Harsha is he explicitly mentions people who are Charvakas and Madhyamakas who deny all the means of knowledge. And so I think it's entirely possible he's talking about Nagarjuna and Jayarashi or people who are similar to them, 
know, so sometimes, especially um, in ancient traditions everywhere, but in the Indian tradition in particularly, in particular, you have this, you know, we are only seeing a little bit of the texts that were probably there at the time. Uh, but he's, I think, explicitly saying, well, I'm kind of borrowing from these people to do this Advaita project, uh, which I can say more about later. But so he's, you know, thought to be that. And so I argue also that he's drawing from some skeptical elements in the Upanishads uh, as the kind of sole Brahmanical or what we would today maybe call Hindu, but not unproblematically. But yeah, so he's the, so, you know, that's kind of what I thought would be interesting is usually Indian philosophy is studied uh, according to the school model where you get, you say, well, here's what this, the Madhyamakas think about this in the Yogacharas and the Advaitins. But I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to write a book where I try to bring people from three different schools together and see what's similar about them. That's a that's a great point. I thought, and I thought one of the things you said early on about kind of questioning the organization of of texts in terms of schools it reminds me of something that that kind of a debate that comes up in Chinese philosophy concerning that as well. And there, one of the issues is to what extent you can even really call particular texts um, texts that belong to a certain school or, or not, or whether they're kind of like jumbles of various things. Um, and I wondered what, what what your take on that in in terms of the classical Indian tradition was in terms of skepticism. Do you think it's a is it useful to think about the the organization in terms of the darshanas, or or is there a better way to do it, or something else? Good, good, yeah, and I think that's a, a great uh, parallel here because I think you know my uh, understanding is there's debate. For example, does it make sense to see Zhuangzi as a Taoist? Exactly. And that right. he didn't know what Taoism was necessarily. Exactly. Those are right. the later categories. Sort of a later category, right? So, um, and you could say the same, you know, with Nagarjuna, I think, you know, he didn't maybe see himself as I'm founding a school called Madhyamaka. He maybe didn't see himself as that way. Um, you know, there's actually one interpretation of Nagarjuna is that what he was actually trying to do is to kind of uh, re. Uh, reassert the original Buddhism against the Abhidharma traditions. So that's, you know, one, it's not a very popular interpretation these days, but you know, it's out there. Uh, but what, one thing I think is that the, the Darshana model, so Darshana uh, is a Sanskrit word that means something like a philosophical view or a school in the sense of a school that has these particular views. And this really comes out of some of the later uh, doxographies. So Madhava is a big one who, it's one of our big sources for knowledge of the Charvaka school, for example. And so what these are kind of, that's late, that's like 14th century, that's relatively late. And what these are kind of like textbooks for students to get a sense of what the different schools think of. Um, and there's way, there's great things about that. And, and, then, and definitely, if you know that someone is a Nyayaka, so a member of the Nyaya school, you can know certain things about them from that. But I think what happens sometimes is it can be restrictive. So you can say, well, here's what, so with Nagarjuna, this really came out of, you know, my views about Nagarjuna originally. So I would come up and I'd say, I think Nagarjuna might be a skeptic of some kind. And then people would say, well, no, 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 no Buddhist could ever be a skeptic because Buddhists believe this, that, and that. Or no, Majamaka is really a form of anti-realism. It can't be skepticism or whatever. So a lot of my questioning of the Darshana model came from these specific specific uh, interchanges I had with people. 
Um, and I'd say, well, why can't a Buddhist be a skeptic? I mean, you know, and then I went back and, and, and one thing I do in the book in chapter one is I try to go back to the early ancient Indian traditions. So I look at early Buddhism and the Pali Canon. And I think, you know, as uh, Stephen Collins and other kind of early Buddhist scholars have found, there is this kind of quietist tradition there. And so what I thought is, well, what if Nagarjuna is developing that in a skeptical way to uh, do something that I think is entirely in line with Buddhism, but not, you know, necessarily in line with what Dignaga or Dharmakirti would think, or or even later Majamakas in the Tibetan tradition or whatever. And so I think one bad effect of the Darshana model is that it can restrict our understanding of individual texts and philosophers too much. That is, it can sort of put a straitjacket on them or a Procrustean bed, I guess, if you want to put it that way, of what this person might think. And so you get that with Jayarashi too. People say, well, he can't be a Charvaka because Charvakas have to believe that there's only one means of knowledge and they have to be materialists. And he's not really a materialist because he's sort of skeptical about everything. But then I said, well, well, why? Why can't we just sort of expand these categories? And they could be a little bit loose and maybe more like Wittgensteinian family resemblances than categories that have to fit, you know, the necessary and sufficient conditions. And so um, it's a big part of what I do. And then to say that skepticism is a tradition, I mean, I'm not using tradition in the sense of a darshana. I mean, there weren't like schools of skepticism necessarily, but I think what you get are, it's pretty clear to me that that the later figures were influenced by the earlier ones. So Jayarashi, for example, uses uh, an argument that's very similar to Chandrakirti, who is one of Nagarjuna's followers against uh, the Dignaga school of Buddhism, right? And then Sri Harsha, as I already mentioned, specifically mentions skeptical Majamakas and Charvakas. So I think there is a sense in which, you know, this is the thing that fascinates me about the Indian tradition is that it's not these little schools that are blocked off from each other, but they're always talking to each other and influencing each other. And so I think you couldn't understand Dignaga, for example, who's a Buddhist, um, without understanding Nyaya. And you couldn't understand later Nyaya without understanding their Buddhist uh, interlocutors. And so I think this idea that there are schools and that they're kind of you know, shelved away from each other. It doesn't really capture to me what's interesting about the tradition, which is the interactions between the various diverse viewpoints. Right. So one of the, one of the really interesting things you talk about uh, relatively early in the book is the kind of com- the comp- comparison or the differences between the kinds of skepticism that you're looking at um, in the classical Indian tradition and what we might see in like contemporary um, skepticism and contemporary philosophy, or even, back in the kind of Peronian, uh, the Hellenistic uh, skepticism. Is, is there a sense in which in which the skeptical traditions that you're looking at are more more similar to one or the other? Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. So um, definitely the, the, the people that I'm looking at in this book are much closer to the Peronian or, or uh, maybe academic skeptics to some extent, but definitely more uh, similar to the Peronian in the sense that Skepticism is more of an, an attitude or a kind of uh, a way you approach philosophical questions rather than it is a kind of particular view about human knowledge or something like that. So um, so I think of what I'm doing, which is very different. So in contemporary analytic philosophy, for example, skepticism tends to be understood 
more or less in the manner it's understood in, in Descartes, for example. Uh, now, there's some problems with that. Some people have suggested Descartes was actually doing something else, but let's not get into that just now. Uh, but basically the same issue, right? So how do you know you're not dreaming or hallucinating or in the matrix or whatever? Um, and then skeptics say, well, you can't know that. And if you can't rule that out, well, then maybe you don't really know anything. And what that is, is it's, it's a it's a move within epistemology. So it's an epistemology. I call this, in the book, I call this type of skepticism epistemological skepticism because it's a move within epistemology. It has a conclusion that's an epistemological conclusion that we don't really know anything or we know far less than we think we do at, at the very least. Um, and that's really interesting. I actually do think there is something similar to that with the Buddhist philosopher Vasubandhu. Uh, I have an article that appeared in the International Journal for the Study of Skepticism a few years ago uh, that gets into that issue. So I do think there are precedents of that in the Indian tradition. Um, and maybe uh, there are some early Charvaka arguments against inference that might be similar to Humean skepticism about inference or, for, or induction, rather. Uh, so I think there are moments of that within the Indian tradition. But what I'm looking at is much more like ancient Greek and Roman skepticism, like Sextus Empiricus, for example, whereas what skepticism is, is kind of, uh, I like to describe it the way I describe it usually to non-philosophers that helps them understand what I'm talking about. As I say, it's therapy for intellectuals, right? So it's kind of like, you know, and Sextus talks about these, explicitly talks about these as well. Sometimes people have a really bad case of dogmatism. I have to give them strong arguments. Sometimes they have a weaker case of dogmatism. I give them weaker arguments. And then you find similar language in Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti too, where uh, they use these kind of medical or therapeutic metaphors. Chandrakirti and Sextus even use the same metaphor at, at some points of um, that their arguments are kind of like a purgative drug that you take that purges everything in your system along with the drug itself, leaving you kind of free from that. So in that sense, and so there's a, a broader category that I call skepticism about philosophy, which you find in that. And maybe um, one thing I hope maybe to work on at some point in the future is I think you, this might be also a good way to understand uh, some you know Chinese philosophers like Zhuangzi uh, or maybe even some Islamic philosophers like Al-Ghazali or someone like that. Now, I'm very tentative about making those claims because it's not my area, but I, I do always enjoy reading Zhuangzi in particular. Um, and I think, you know, maybe maybe there's, yeah, he's, he's fun to read. Um, and so I think, you know, maybe what I'm trying to do is step back and make a broader category rather than saying Nagarjuna is a Puranist or Sextus is a Madhyamaka or Sextus is a Jairashian or whatever. We had to step back a little bit and and sort of create a general cross-cultural category. And of course, to do that, you have to have sort of, you know, the boundaries might be a little bit loose. And so I think I say in the book that the skepticism about philosophy maybe is a maybe it's a family resemblance, but it, or maybe it's a diaspora. <laughs> but it's sort of like um, you know, it's there's always gonna be, you know, a little bit loose with that because they're never exactly the same. So one difference that I discussed, for example, is that with Sextus, his argument strategy works by finding 
two opposing viewpoints and seeing how they're equally good. So there's this Greek word, uh, isostenia, which means something like equal in terms of convincingness and lack of convincingness. And, um, but in the Indian traditions that I look at, you find that the form of argument is called a prasanga. So prasanga is a, an unwanted consequence is how I translate it. Or it literally, it means an attachment to the, the opponent's view. And what that is, is it shows that, well, here's three or four different options and none of those work. So you should give up your view. So it's a, it's a kind of, it's a different strategy, but I think the similarity lies in what you get is this kind of mental coolness or mental repose, kind of a peace of mind or something like that uh, at the end of it. And so I think there's a similar goal, even if some of the methods, but then also some of the argument strategies are similar. So you get things like uh, appeal to infinite regress and circularity in both the Greek and Indian traditions, uh, for example, and, you know, in Zhuangzi also, of course. One of the things you mentioned is about um, this notion of, of, of skepticism as therapy, right, that you find in Peronian skepticism and various other kinds as well. And one of the interesting things about the Peronians is that they seem to suggest that once you finish dogmatizing, you just get it, right? Like you, you gain ataraxia, this peace of mind, right? There's nothing else kind of that's needed. Uh, the interesting, the question I had about the, um, the classical Indian philosophers that you look at, so they're coming from particular traditions, right? So Nagarjuna and the Buddhist tradition, for example, do they do they have a similar view that when you when you destroy these views or when you when you show that that kind of that a view is faulty that you automatically get that you 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 get something from the appearances or that you just automatically get peace of mind or is there another step to what to what they're doing? Good, good, uh, <clears throat> yeah. So, um, and I think with with Sextus, I mean, at least how I read it is that I mean, you do get this ataraxia, but you know, the reason I think he wrote the voluminous books, you know, the volume, the, the huge books he did is that, you know, it's sort of a therapy, like, well, maybe he's got it permanently, but you have to keep doing it. You have to work on, you have to get a knack. And so, um, so there's a, um, one of uh, the scholars of ancient Pyrrhonism I've learned the most from is Harold Thorsrud. And he talks about uh, sort of sextus skepticism is, is a, th- a thing you do. It's a skill you gain. It's like riding a bicycle. Like a, you have to practice it and then you get it. And maybe once you get it, you get autroxia and you're good. Um, and so I don't know if I see that quite as much. I think there is a hint in, uh, there's a passage in Nagarjuna and the commentary by Chandrakirti where Chandrakirti takes it to be actually something like that, that once you pacify all the bases of conceptual proliferation, you are, that's nirvana. And he actually says it pretty explicitly like that at one point. Um, so there is some reason to think maybe there is that kind of attitude that once you really do this and really kind of stop hankering after these views about things, you will achieve nirvana, right? So there's there's some reason to think maybe that's the case. Um, and then, you know, it's with Jayarashi, it's maybe... You know, he says uh, he has the greatest ending of the book. He says, "Well, when you've you know destroyed all the all the categories, the name of his text is the the lion that destroys categories, or literally it uh, overfloods them with arguments." I think. Um, and once you do that, you can enjoy your life because you're not worried about you know all this philosophical nonsense, um, and you can just kind of enjoy your life. And that to me seems like a very Charvaka thing to say. Now, do you do that once and then you're good, or do you have to work at it? And 
it's hard to say because I mean, one thing I really love about Sextus, for example, is he tells us a little more about the way of life. He doesn't tell us everything. With the figures I'm looking at, you get very you only get these little hints about how they actually think this should impact your daily life. So you get that in Jairashi, but other than that, it's mostly it's wall-to-wall arguments um, in the classical Indian style where you have arguments and objections and replies and replies to the objections and like, you know, all it, it just goes on and on. Um, so, you know, someone like me, I have to maybe do a little detective work and sort of try to figure that out and say, well, what I think makes sense with the text. Um, and so that's a good question. And so maybe he himself has reached that point. Um, and he's just doing this for a laugh. Um, and there's some kind of funny parts in there. He calls people names and things like that. Um, so I think there's a part where he says, you know, if, if you agree with Dignaga and Dharmakirti that there are two means of knowledge, inference and perception, that's the gesticulation of a fool. Right. And I always kind of laugh at that. He's, um, having a bit of fun there. Um, so, but yeah, and then with, with Sri Harsha, I think what he's trying to do is something even more difficult to pin down. He's trying to say, well, once you figure out that your attempts to get a handle on reality philosophically, especially through the realist schools like Nyaya and Mimamsa, this opens you up to the possibility of having some sort of non-dual experience. But of course, you can't really talk about non-dual experience. So it's this very subtle move, I think. And, and one of the things I'm working on now is thinking about to what extent for Sri Harsha is you know, non-dual mystical experience, something like a skeptical scenario that, look, you don't have it right because there's this possible other kind of experience. That, But he doesn't argue for that. This is where I think he's, he's a little subtle, a little clever here. So he doesn't actually tell you there is non-dual experience. He, he tells you he had this experience, but he doesn't argue for it philosophically, which I think is quite interesting. So at least opens up the possibility of going on to this other sort of experience. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is the non-dual experience bit that you uh, that you talked about in the chapter on Sri Harsha is really interesting uh, to me as well, and it's it's something that comes up every time I teach Advaita um, in in class, right? When I talk about this theory of of non-dual Brahman, there there are a million problems with it, right? That that people bring up, and one of the things that I thought may be going on, right? Um, and there's there's a there's a mention of this in um, certain Christian texts, right, where they say things like, well. The Trinity is not supposed to make sense, right? It's supposed to be it's supposed to be a logical problem in order to to show the kind of the bounds of our reason, something like this. Do you think that there's something like this going on in Sriharsha, right? That there's a attempt to show that the that somehow our reason isn't gonna work to get us what we need where we need to go for mystical knowledge, something like that? Yes, yes, yeah. Actually I think that's very similar um to what's going on. Although I think <clears throat> I, I would say Sriharsha is even a little more subtle than that because mm. He kind of says, you know, he doesn't say, well, look, I had this sort of experience. He doesn't say that much about it. And he never says you should also have it mm. or you you can also this, you know, he sort of hints at it. But he kind of he seems to think that you go through this, you know, in the 
uh, as I translated it, the buffet of destruction. Uh, and then the buffet fills you up so much that you have no, uh, no, no appetite for more philosophy. Um, and so, uh, but then what do you do? Well, he says, well, you could try this out. Um, but he doesn't argue for it. I think, and I think that's really entirely consistent. And so my, my journeys with Sri Harsha last, uh, when I was writing this, these chapters, I kind of really gained this deep appreciation for what he's doing in that it's a very non-dogmatic sort of mysticism, if it, if that makes sense. So I think mm. this is one of the critiques you get in the Orientalist view of Asian philosophy. So Orientalist in the sense of, oh, those those Asian people are are other, they're totally different, and we can't understand them, and they're irrational, right? Is that he has, he's a rational skeptic. I mean, you can't read his arguments and tell me this is an irrational guy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got these sort of little razor sharp logical distinctions, and he's so well versed in Nyaya, for example, that he out Nyayas the Nyayakas, right? So he kind of <laughs> like, you know, uses their own terminology and their own ideas against them. And so you can't say he's like some sort of like, he's just going to sit there and, you know, drink Soma or whatever um, and have these experiences. Um, But he's trying to show, like you said, I think maybe the limits of reason. Now he's trying to demonstrate the limits of reason, but I don't think he's telling us what they are. This, to me, this is kind of a subtle distinction, but I think Mm. you get this a lot with skeptical philosophers. They're trying to demonstrate things that, if they said they would be contradicting themselves. Mm -hmm. So maybe what I think you could see Sri Harsha in particular is maybe demonstrating the bounds of reason, if you want to put it that way. Without avoiding the, avoiding the uh, academic skeptic problem of saying that there's no knowledge, something like this. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. So yeah, so this is the, the common critique against skeptics, both in the Greek and Roman tradition, but also I think in the Indian tradition, you do see this a lot especially with Nyaya, they'll say, Hey, you, you, uh, you skeptics, you, you're contradicting yourself. You say we have no means of knowledge, but how do you know that? And if you know that, then there are means of knowledge. Exactly. Right. Mm. So very similar. Um, and so one way to avoid that, I think is to just not say anything about <laughs> right. that. And then, and so this is kind of where I get with Jairashi also. I think he's, he's not, explicitly saying there aren't any pramanas he's just giving you a whole bunch of arguments um, and then you know i think another key to understanding it is this unique form of negation that came uh, into play in especially in the madhyamaka tradition but in other traditions as well um where you have a sometimes it's translated as commitmentless denial so you're denying something but without committing yourself to the opposite hmm. so you deny the opponent's view without having any view of your own. You're not, you're not saying, so it's more like saying not a, uh, or if I argue against a, I'm not also asserting not a, hmm. I'm just not asserting anything. So this non-assertion, uh, we should get something like that. I think in Peronian skepticism too, right? Where sexist never says people don't know anything because right. he's well aware of this problem. And actually the academics, some of them got out of this, the Carneades, at least according to Cicero, had this idea of a um, sort of a plausible presentation where you sort of, you're, it's less than a truth claim, but it's sort of like, you think maybe it's like that. That's how they got out of it. That's actually comforting to me as a scholar, because I study all this stuff. And I think, 
oh, am I asserting a thesis in this book? I mean, I, I have, a th- I, I say it several times what my thesis is in the book, right? And I wonder if I'm taking this seriously, should I not be asserting a thesis? And then I think, well, uh, you know, I have to get tenure and stuff and publish things. So of course I have to have a thesis statement, but you know, I kind of, but to be the academic route is the way to go for scholars of skepticism to say, well, I'm sort of tentatively asserting this thesis. Do I really know that? Well, you know, maybe not, but you know, kind right. of asserting it. Right. So anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. So, so the, uh, what I wanted to go to things I wanted to go back to was the Buddhist tradition um, and Nagarjuna in particular. Nagarjuna is one of these philosophers is always, he's always baffled me. Um, I'm kind of one of these, I, I've, thought I've understood what was going on. And I'm like, no, I don't understand what's going on. And what, one of the things you did with the Nagarjuna here, I thought was really interesting. And I think really, I think what you say about him is right. Um, and you make this distinction about the, uh, in the early Buddhist tradition, um, between the analysis insight tendency in Buddhism and Buddhist quietism. Could you say a little bit about uh, what those are and how you kind of bring those together in the, in the chapters? Good, good. And there's no shame in being confused by Nagarjuna. Uh, everyone has been confused by him for the last 1,800 years. So I think that's totally fine. But that's what makes him such a great philosopher. You know, I think I just read somewhere recently that if a philosopher is completely clear about everything, well, then nobody's going to study that person because there's there's no sort of puzzles to figure out. And so with Nagarjuna, I think the biggest puzzle is it seems like there's two incompatible things going on. So he seems to be giving some kind of argument or some sort of uh, some sort of rationale in terms of a view of emptiness of all things. Hmm. Uh, and Majamaka's love to talk about emptiness, say everything is empty, uh, empty of essence or uh, tr- inherent nature, or however you want to translate Swababa. And um, so he's got that, and that looks like a normal philosophical project. He's got a view, he's going to argue for it, way to go, That's that keeps philosophers in business. Uh, but on the other hand, he also says these strange things like, um, well, the purpose of Buddhism is the um, relinquishing of all views. That's the end of the text, he says that. Uh, and then there's another one where he says, anyone who makes a view out of emptiness, uh, we, we call incurable. Right? So... So well, on one hand, it looks like he's got a view, and on one hand, he says he doesn't have any views. So what's going on? And so what I did is I thought, well, let's look back in the earlier tradition and see what his inspiration for these sort of weird things may have been. And so um, I was reading. Uh, so Stephen Collins is a, is one of my sources for the idea of quietism, and he points to some passages you find in the early Buddhist texts, in the Pali Canon, uh, that is. And so in in the early Buddhist texts, you get these expressions where sometimes the idea seems to be stop having opinions about things, and then you'll stop suffering. Because if you think about it, having an opinion or a view about things means you have to defend it from other people. Then you might have anxiety. Oh, what if my view is really correct or if it's not? And so you might have this. And so there's a number of passages um, and metaphors, so famous metaphors, um, like the raft is a good one. There's this metaphor of the raft where the Buddha says the teachings are like a raft for getting across the river. And then once you're across the river, you don't have to keep carrying the raft with you everywhere you go. Um, so that's one example. Then there's another one, the Sutta Nipata, where the saying is something like a, a man without opinions is truly free from everything. And so you get these kind of quietists. And, and so, uh, Collins calls it quietism, and he's explicitly thinking also of 
quietism in um, a Christian tradition, I think in, what is it, maybe 17th century Quakers, in, or there's quietist, uh, maybe similar to Quakers, I think. Um, and so there's that. But then there's also, if you read the early Buddhist texts, there's pretty clearly cases where the Buddha is saying, here's my argument that there's no self, and I'm giving you a conclusion, and there's no self, right? It looks right. like a straightforward philosophical argument. Um, and there's an analysis of different kinds of experience. And so the insight analysis is what I called that because the idea is you're supposed to have some kind of insight as a result of your philosophical analysis. And that's what really gets developed in the Abhidharma traditions to a great degree. So Abhidharma came along uh, after early Buddhism and they said, well, we have to systematize this because the Buddha said great stuff, but he wasn't always all that systematic about it. So we're going to make it philosophically systematic and have lots of arguments. Um, and so you get that. And then Nagarjuna comes along and I see what he's, he comes along after Abhidharma had been around for a couple hundred years. And maybe he saw, well, there's limitations of that approach. You're kind of missing something because you can get attached to those views themselves. You can get attached to your opinions about things or your views about things. And as you know, maybe most listeners know, uh, but if not, in Buddhism, attachment is one of the causes of suffering. You become attached to things, and that causes suffering. And the point of Buddhism is to relieve suffering. And so I think it makes sense to think maybe quietism. And so what Nagarjuna did that's so interesting is he took these two tendencies that both exist in the early Buddhist texts. And I'm fine with having competing tendencies in something because I'm a scholar and, you know, I think that's fine to just admit there's competing tendencies. To me, that's part of what makes these texts interesting. Um, whereas I think sometimes earlier scholars tended to talk about things like the philosophy of early Buddhism or the philosophy of the Upanishads. And I don't think we need to do that. Now, maybe if you're a practitioner and you want to have a coherent view, you need to do that. But, you know, maybe we can admit there's there's multiple stuff. And so what Nagarjuna did is he took these tendencies, and both are there, and combined them. And he thought, well, what if you analyze things as far as, anal as analysis can go? You analyze things so far that you end up analyzing the analysis and end up with nothing. Wouldn't that be a way to use the analysis to get to some sort of quietist view where you don't have any views, which is precisely what he says. Now, at the very end of the text, some people have taken that, you know, so I think there's a translation where Mark Sideritz, for example, puts uh, false views in little square brackets. Square brackets are the friends of uh, translators sometimes. Um, but, you know, he's building a little bit in there, which is fine. Um, that's one interpretation you can have that when a guardian, when he says you should relinquish views, he just means bad ones or false ones or harmful views. But what I thought is, well, what if he means it? What if he actually means all views? How could we make sense of that? And one way to make sense of that is to say what he's doing is having two phases. And so this is the kind of centerpiece of my Nagarjuna interpretation is that there's two phases of what he's doing. So phase one is to argue in favor of emptiness as a philosophical view, kind of like a normal philosopher does, right? And then phase two is to show you that that view contains the seeds of its own destruction. And this is why I think Nagarjuna needs emptiness because you sort of, emptiness is the emptiness of essence, but what if emptiness itself is empty? Well, then what are you left with? It kind of undermines itself. 
This is the the idea. And, you know, this is why Chandrakirti, one of his followers, gives this metaphor of the purgative drug, right? So I see emptiness could be like that. And that's the second phase. And uh, that you can see evidence of that. I go through this in the book, but especially in those last few chapters, once you think everything's empty, you might turn back and say, well, what am I doing? Why do I need to keep doing philosophy? Um, why, what am I getting out of this? And it kind of maybe, and, and, and so that's my view. So there's the two phases. And I actually had an interesting conversation with Mark Sideritz about this once that um, he actually didn't think he disagreed, which I thought was interesting. And maybe we can get into that later. He has this famous anti-realist interpretation where he thinks uh, Nagarjuna has a view of anti-realism. Um, and I've argued against that, but he actually thought maybe we weren't as far apart as I thought. But I, I'm still going to stick with my interpretation for now until he convinces me otherwise. I think. But I think you you uh, you you uh, concede somewhat to the anti-realist view, right? I think you kind of have want to have a hybrid view where you combine some of the insights from that from that view. Right, right. So I think, um, yeah. So I think phase one, like you said, yeah, I, I concede that's basically a form of anti-realism where um, there's, we can't say anything about things without kind of our own uh, dependently originated categories of thinking about things. So, and that's kind of this Mark Sideritz line. And I think that's right as far as it goes, but you have to notice this other part where you also have to give up that view. And I actually, you know, I think I argue maybe, maybe it's in a long, one of those long end notes in the book, uh, but I actually kind of think any sort of global anti-realism does undermine itself just as a, you know, that's my opinion as a philosopher, I guess, uh, because, you know, there's, I give this little kind of clever prasanga argument of my own against that. And I think Nagarjuna saw that, that if you have this view of emptiness, you eventually end up not really having views about anything. One of the neat things uh, is this this idea that when you so you apply these skeptical arguments um, and then you're left with something um, and it seems like what that is is going to be different for for each of the thinkers that you talk about because of their kind of the background or their school or something like this but it's also really hard down to pin down what their positive views if they had any uh, may have been um, and do you think did, do you think did they did they advance any positive views or and did these or did they just have a kind of idea say for Nagarjuna right once we um, once we do away with views then you've got just the kind of the, the traditional Buddhist path, something like this, right? Were there positive, uh, were there kind of additional unstated positive views that you think were behind this? Okay, great, great question. Um, so, yeah, so this was one of the criticisms I got kind of early on when I was developing these sort of ideas several years ago at a conference. Someone uh, said, well, think about Nagarjuna and Jayarashi. They, they, you say they're both skeptics, but they end up in pretty different places, right? Mm-hmm. One, you know, if you if you follow Nagarjuna, you'll end up with some kind of uh, some kind of Buddhist practice, right? You're you're already in a Buddhist context at that point. If you mm-hmm. follow Jayarashi, you'll end up kind of living a free wheeling, easy Charvaka life, you know, so that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe the way of getting at your question is uh, this metaphor I came up with in the book. I think I, I put this in the introduction was imagine you had three people doing uh, logic puzzles on, and they got one of those big books of logic puzzles to do with a pencil every morning or something for 10 minutes or something. And one person is doing it uh, for fun. Cause she just thinks it's fun. Say another person 
is worried about the effects of aging and trying to stave off Alzheimer's and diseases like that. And maybe another person uh, needs to be really mentally acute for her job or something. And so with those three people, you might say, well, they're, they're, they're doing the same actual puzzles. Now, the reason for their rationale for doing it might be a little bit different, but in some sense, they're doing the same thing. And so the analogy then is, I think if you actually look at a lot of these arguments are very similar, and I think they, they kind of end up with this um, sort of lack of desire to go on and, and make more philosophical views and kind of say exactly what they think about all this stuff, but maybe in different contexts. So I think one thing we need to remember with the, with Nagarjuna is that this text is not necessarily for beginners. Uh, This is a text you're probably, his intended audience would probably be people who are already pretty committed to Buddhism, probably monks, to be honest. Um, And so they're going to do this within a Buddhist context. Now Jayarashi might be thinking of Charvakas or anybody, and then maybe um, Sri Harsha, I like to think he's thinking about, you know, someone who's an Advaitin who's kind of thinks those Nyaya people have a pretty good idea, and maybe I'll learn about that, and it's going to make sure you're not convinced by that stuff. Um, now, where they end up is pretty different, mm-hmm. right? But I think the means by which they get there is surprisingly similar. And so I think um, this is one of the advantages of lessening up on the darshana model so then the darshana model they would have to be different because they have different ways of life at the end of it but what i'm looking at is well what if they're actually not all that different in terms of what they're actually doing philosophically and so do they have positive views that's the question right and so i think it kind of depends you know what you mean by a positive view Mm -hmm. so i think in all three of them they're in um, in a context where what they can do is is this, and I make this move in one of the Jairashi chapters of contextualism, right? So contextualism in contemporary epistemology is sort of this idea, the semantic contextualism that when I say S knows that P, whether that's true or not depends on my context. If I'm in a philosophy classroom where we're talking about uh, external world skepticism, Maybe S doesn't know that P, but if I'm out walking around on the street, uh, we have a kind of lower standards for ascribing knowledge or different standards. And so I think they could all three take a move like that. So uh, with Nagarjuna, of course, is something I didn't get into much in the book, but maybe I will at some point. He has this whole Buddhist idea of conventional truth, right? Where you can talk about things being sort of conventionally true. Um, Or, you know, sometimes I like to translate conventional truth is like it's American idiom of uh, close enough for horseshoes and hand grenades. So something my mom used to say a lot. Um, so you kind of have like a looser conception of knowledge, right? That's good for your everyday stuff. And so there, I think, you know, I put it explicitly with the Jairashi chapter that you could say something like Devadatta, who's that's like the Sanskrit Tom, Dick or Harry, just sort of a generic guy. So Devadatta sees a cup that could be true in your everyday context where you're just, you know, you want to know, does this guy see a cup or not? Whereas if you're doing philosophy, maybe you think, well, what do we mean by perception? And is perception, can we make sense of perception as a means of knowledge? And then maybe he doesn't. And so you kind of get this uh, contextual. Now, I'm not saying any of these figures necessarily had that. I mean, maybe with Nagarjuna and Sri Harsha, 
did have access to something like that within their respective traditions. So also in Advaita, of course, you have this view that there's the really real, real stuff that's non-dualism, but then there's this sort of like the phenomenal realm where, you know, things are kind of, kind of real, but not really something like that. So I think, now do they advance these views though? Do they have positive views? I think, you know, to get at the, the, the way I'm thinking of this is, I think you could say they have positive views, at least at the everyday level. So mm. Jairashi, for example, is going to say, you shouldn't um, go down to the Shiva temple or you shouldn't become a Buddhist because that's just nonsense, right? Because right. uh, he's a Charvaka. Now, if you press him on it philosophically, he might at the end of the day admit, well, I don't know. That's really true. But kind of at, at this everyday level, I'm going to be a Charvaka and I'm going to ridicule the the religious people right so i don't know if this makes sense in my answering your question no that's great actually that was just about to ask something very similar do, do, do you think that's something like uh, what you're talking about with jai rashi do you think that's something like the peronian following the appearances so you mentioned at one point he says that um the result of his skeptical methods is that quote everyday practices are made delightful and it really reminded me of that idea of well once you once you give up dogmatism right then you're able to how do we how do we live right how do we live without beliefs well we just follow things that appear to us without making these claims about that you know that they are the way the world is something like this is that what what you think is going on in Jairashi? yes exactly yeah that's exactly what i think is going on uh so he doesn't he thinks well we can go on in our lives perfectly fine without having a developed epistemology or metaphysics or whatever uh, most people do in fact right uh <laughs> and so he's saying that even philosophers most of the time go on like we don't have it all figured out uh, and so I think what he's thinking is, what, again, this idea of therapy for intellectuals, like his, his target is really people that are pretty familiar with the philosophical traditions of classical India. Um, and he's obviously himself seems to be pretty familiar with a lot of this stuff. Uh, so he has chapters on, you know, Buddhism and Nyaya and Mimamsa, and he talks about Jainism a little bit. And so he's, you know, he talks about all these different schools. He's familiar with them. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's pretty much what's going on is that you sort of, there's this liberation that happens once you stop worrying so much. So another way I think I put it somewhere was, uh, Jairash is how to work, how to stop worrying and learn to love a life without (laughs) philosophy and religion. Right. So you sort of, once you stop worrying about this, you'll be happier. Whereas of course, Nagarjuna and Sri Harsha do have religious commitments in some sense. Mm -hmm. And there, um, so I recently published something on, comparing Nagarjuna and Sextus on religious practice. Hmm. And so Sextus, this sounds weird to us, I think, especially in our kind of post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment kind of culture. But Sextus actually says that you can be religious and be a Peronian skeptic. And that sounds kind of nuts to us because we think of religion as paradigmatically associated with belief. But if you think about it in the kind of ancient pagan context, what is religion? Well, you go down to the temple and you sacrifice a chicken to Apollo or whatever. And, you know, maybe you do certain festivals and things like that. And I think this idea, you know, that uh, I guess religious studies scholars might call it orthopraxis versus orthodoxy, mm-hmm. right? So that I think if you think of religion more as a practice, well, Sextus says, sure, you can do that. But whether there really are gods on Mount Olympus or whatever, he says, we suspend judgment about that. We talk mm-hmm. as if there are gods when we do the religious rituals, but we don't have a philosophical opinion. 
or as I think Julianus put it, they don't really do theology in a philosophical sense, hmm. but they kind of just, they'll go down to the temple and go to a festival or whatever. And so I see uh, Nagarjuna could have a similar, you could say, well, look, do I really affirm things like merit and karma and rebirth? Well, you know, maybe not at a philosophical level, but I might kind of, if that enters into my religious practice as a Buddhist, I might do that. And so I think to make this work, we have to sort of rethink what we mean by religion and religious praxis, uh, which I think is really a worthwhile thing. I think it's uh, something that's quite interesting. And one of the benefits of reading old stuff, especially old stuff from very different cultural contexts than, say, you know, 21st century America. Mm, right. Speaking of that, I, I found your your final section, uh, your final chapter and conclusion on the uh, lessons that we should take from skepticism about philosophy really, really fascinating uh, and important. And I wanted to ask you if you could discuss some of the some of what you think are the main lessons we can take from these three thinkers concerning skepticism about philosophy itself that you discuss in that chapter. Good, good, yeah. So, yeah, in that chapter, I was uh, that was that was really fun to write, and it was kind of. Um, me going full on metaphilosophical, which you don't get to do that often. Actually, most people don't let you do that. So I thought I'll sneak it in at the end of the book. Um, so there it is. Uh, and so, so kind of to give a background, a little bit of what I'm going through there is um, the longer I do philosophy, kind of the more amazed I am that anyone has a philosophical view about anything. It's kind of just because especially if you study the history of philosophy, you know, people have been thinking about some of these issues for 3000 years mm. and we think, Oh, well we 21st century, uh, you know, Anglo-Americans or pragmatists or continental philosophers or whatever, we, we finally got it right. And I think, <laughs> well, come on, who do, who the hell do we think we are? Right. It's sort <laughs> right. of like, you know, so I think the history of philosophy is valuable in that again, it may be a little bit of intellectual modesty, right? That if someone as smart as Dharma Kirti can't make epistemology work, what makes you think you're going to do it now? But I, like Jayarashi, I kind of find that liberating. So might, some people might find this depressing. Oh, what are we doing? You know, why don't we just close down and, and go work for the business department or whatever? Um, at least we'd make some money. But, um, you know, I think I actually find it quite liberating. And, and I think actually one thing I, I hint at is that this might be showing us something like the limits of our cognitive abilities as human beings. And I think there's plenty of evidence for that in the Indian tradition, as I discussed in this book, but maybe in other traditions. So I mentioned uh, someone like Zhuangzi or Al-Ghazali, or, you know, there's lots of other people to look at. Right. Um, or, you know, some, so there's some ways of reading the later Wittgenstein that might be, or, or someone like Derrida or somebody like that. Uh, so I think there's a lesson there that maybe because this intellectual humility, uh, but maybe what philosophy is, is us trying to answer questions we just don't have the cognitive equipment to answer. And so there I get a little bit into some theories from modern psychology and things like that. Mm. Um, and modern philosophy of mind, there's this whole view of Mysterianism, right? And so, um, but again, you know, I don't think that's necessarily depressing. And so what I argue for is what I call mitigated skepticism about philosophy. So I say, well, yeah, I think, you know, these three pillars that I talk about, they have a point. Maybe maybe philosophy isn't going to get us all the answers that we want. But that itself is kind of liberating, right? So, But it doesn't mean we shouldn't do philosophy. So this is the trick. How do I say that? But then simultaneously, 
here I am. I'm a philosophy professor, right? I'm right. <laughs> making my my living teaching philosophy. Uh, why would I do this? So, mm. so I come up with some answers. One, I think philosophy is fun. I think you get a sense of that definitely in Jayarashi. That's why he's one of my favorite philosophers because he's he's obviously having fun at what he's doing. And I think we sort of forget that, right? In this kind of rush to always be like, well, we have to be proper professionals, and you know, we to be you have to be serious to be a professional. But we sort of forget that, you know, this is fun. Like doing philosophy is fun. And so then there's also, you know, the cognitive skills you get, like um, critical thinking, obviously. But also uh, one I really try to stress with my students is what I call intellectual empathy, which is something like if you can understand what these philosophers are saying, well, that requires a kind of getting into their their thinking a little bit. And if you can do that with philosophers, Maybe you could do that with people you meet on the internet or people you meet in real life or something like that. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I think, and then, and then kind of the other, the other option, I think, again, like I mentioned, this kind of um, intellectual um, kind of humility or the lessening of dogmatism. And I think this is a point Hume makes really well in the inquiry where he says, well, look, one of the benefits of skepticism is that it can, make you a little more, uh, less dogmatic. I mean, I think if you really take some of these skeptical arguments to heart, you're probably not going to be running around killing people for the sake of your beliefs (laughs) or whatever, or, or, or being, or even just things like being a jerk on the internet, which is a kind of a source of much dogmatism today. Mm. Um, So I think there's valuable things to learn from philosophy. Also just, you know, historically, you know, speaking as a historian of philosophy, just the understanding the ideas and where these ideas come from. So one thing I'm, I'm teaching intro to Asian philosophy right now, we're going to start working on Confucianism next week. And so I think if you understand something about Confucianism, you're understanding something about East Asia as a, a place where there's lots of different cultures. And that's one of the major influences. And so I think understanding the history of some of these traditions is interesting. And then also, you know, like I said at the beginning, like, these, I kind of make friends with some of these people, right? I feel like Jairashi is my friend. And I mean, it sounds cheesy, but there's something no, to I, it, right? Like, kind of, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sort of study these people and you sort of feel a little bit of an intellectual kinship. And there's something very valuable about that, too. And so I think the history of philosophy is really valuable and really interesting. And um, so I hope listeners will. Uh, become historians of philosophy if they aren't already or at least appreciate it and i'd have to become one but you know if you sort Absolutely. Of appreciate it. let's recruit <laughs> and so finally uh, ethan i just wanted to ask you uh, and you answered some of this uh, before when you're talking about things you're working about what what you're working on right now um is it is it connected to this book uh, other kind of projects that you're working on yeah yeah so one thing um the kind of the one of the big things i'm working on is i'm co-editing a volume on skepticism in India with Matthew Dosti. And um, we're, we're, we're still, you know, as edited volumes tend to take much longer than anyone thinks they will. So <laughs> oh, yes. it'll be out at some point uh, in the next, next year or two, hopefully. But um, the, uh, that's uh, kind of, we have a number of contributors um, uh, looking at various topics in skepticism in Indian philosophy. And so I'm, I, I actually am contributing something to that. That's about, skepticism in the Charvaka tradition. So I have a section on Jayarashi, but I also have a section on the 
what are sometimes called the more educated Travakas who accept a limited form of inference. And so I argue that they're actually somewhat similar to the academic skeptics in that sense. And then there's uh, this these really interesting critiques of the means of knowledge of inference that I think are similar in some ways to Humean uh, critiques of induction. So that's one thing I'm looking at, different kinds of skepticism within the Charvaka tradition. Uh, and then we also have you know, a couple articles uh, will be on Madhyamaka and um, maybe some on the Dignaga Dharmakirti tradition. And um, I think we also have one on Vedanta. So we'll have a few really interesting pieces in there. Uh, and then I'm also working on an article on Sri Harsha, where I'm trying to say that he is using non-dual mystical experience as a kind of skeptical scenario. So if you think about it, that is sort of a skeptical scenario that's like, hey, what if we're all in the matrix or what if we're dreaming, where the the reality would be so different than our normal everyday experience takes reality to be. And so I'm trying to say so this is another way in which we can say Sri Harsha is advancing a form of skepticism. So I'm, I'm thinking through that a little bit. Um, and um, so kind of the the main things I've got going right now. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'll just leave it at, I'll leave it there. <laughs> well, that's, that sounds great. Um, and I'd like to thank you once again. That was a, I really, really enjoyed your book. It's an awesome book. So all the listeners check it out. It's really cool. Um, and I wanted to thank you so much again uh, for, for joining me today to chat. All right. Thank you. I, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. 